Good morning. The reading for today is from Isaiah 48, verses 1 through 11. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared to you, them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer from my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Oh, sorry. (laughs) All right, thanks, Caitlin. Here we go. Isaiah 48 and 49 today. God gives grace, but uh, right out of the gate, I want to mention to you that you need your Bibles. So have your Bibles out. And if you don't have a Bible or a phone, which would be shocking to me that you don't have one or the other, but at any rate, if you don't have a Bible or a phone, we have Bibles in the back by the offering boxes. You could grab one of those Bibles. Uh, and use that. You could even take it home if you like as our gift. Um, But it's just really helpful if you're able to follow along somehow, because we're covering large swaths of scripture each morning that we're doing this series, this nine-week series in Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. So I'm going to give a little review and a little preview, and then we'll dive into these two chapters, uh, focusing mostly on 48, but we'll eventually get to 49 also. So, the review, God's people have been rebelling against God for literally centuries. And Isaiah comes along now with a word from the Lord, tells them that God is going to discipline them by sending them into exile uh, under the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Okay, so he's going to discipline them. He's going to refine them. But now, God is also telling his people through Isaiah of the redemption and the transformation and the restoration that is going to take place for them after they experience this 70 years in exile. And what God is doing initially he's in his confrontation with his people is he is reminding his people of their adultery. And let me explain that term. Their, their worship of false gods, their worship of idols. Uh, his people have turned away from him as the one true God and have turned to worship false gods and idols. And we saw last week that literally they would take their leftover gold and silver, take it to a goldsmith and have it shaped into a, a statue or an idol, and they would bow down and worship this idol. Now, I know in the 21st century that we don't do things like that. 
uh, literally, but metaphorically. We have our own false gods and idols that we will metaphorically bow down to, that we serve, that we metaphorically worship. And so this still applies. And the reason God calls it adultery, not just idolatry, but adultery, is because when, they, when we go off to worship false gods, when his people do that, it's like they're cheating on him. So it's a form of adultery. But then God also, in these chapters that we're looking at, God comforts his people by telling them that his ultimate victory over the Babylonians will be complete, and they can count on that. And in all of this, God for, uh, God's uh, word, God tells Isaiah to tell the people also that it's not just the, uh, the redemption from exile that they can look forward to, but they can also look forward to the suffering servant, the Messiah, who is to come hundreds of years later, and we know that is Jesus. So there's all these levels going on in Isaiah that ultimately culminates in chapters 52 and 53, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, uh, which is, in fact, uh, the prophecy of Jesus coming and his, uh, his crucifixion, his uh, his suffering, and that's why he's called the suffering servant. Uh, today, we dive deeper into what this salvation looks like for both the ancient Israelites and for us today. There's so much crossover, so much correlation. But I will tell you, there are also some tough lessons in these two chapters. Yet, ultimately, these chapters are about God's love and compassion for his people after he has refined them, after he has disciplined them. Uh, he's going to, after he refines them, there is going to be grace and compassion for them, even though they really don't deserve it. And, and that's an interesting thing to think about. Uh, they don't deserve grace. If you deserve grace, it's not grace. We need to understand that. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. You can't do anything to merit unmerited favor. And so God gives his grace because he is a God of covenant. He is a God of his word. He is a God of character. It's out of his character that he gives this grace and compassion. And that's exactly the same picture of Jesus' love and grace for us as well. Through his sacrifice for us on the cross, he imputes his righteousness to us, even though we didn't do anything to deserve this favor, this sacrifice from Jesus. Now again, we're taking big chunks every Sunday, so it's helpful to have, every, have your Bible in front of you because we're not going to be able to cover every verse uh, and we're not going to be able to do it in the depth that we would necessarily like to do every week. But hopefully, um, I've discerned the Spirit, and we're going to be able to scratch most of you where you itch this morning. So, again, let's go back to what Caitlin read this morning and take a, a few verses at a time. 48, 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel, and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So some of you are like, this kind of sounds like, like they're nominal. In other words, they, they believe in God uh, in name only, but they're not really following him. And that's exactly what is happening here. That's exactly what God is calling them out um, on and exactly why they had to spend 70 years in exile. They were nominal. They were God's people in name only, claiming to know God, but stubbornly refusing to follow him. And we're going to see that throughout uh, these verses this morning. And understand, there are many nominal Christians too, uh, people who are Christian in name only. They claim to know Jesus, and sometimes they might even speak in his name, but they refuse the truth of his teachings and even challenge his teachings, his word as dated or archaic or judgmental or naive. 
God is reminding the Israelites that though they are his people and he's going to redeem them, they need to come to grips with and repent of this self-deception that they just they only know him in, in name only. That's a falsehood. And then I just find these next three verses fascinating. I'll spend a little time on them. Let me read them again for you. The former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead is brass. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. This is really interesting. Remember, God said that the Israelites didn't turn from their rebellion. If they didn't turn from their rebellion, their false gods, their sin, he would discipline them. But in their stubbornness, even after he already demonstrated his discipline once by bringing the Assyrians into the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., and the southern kingdom, this is who he's speaking to now, they saw that. Even after that, they refused to listen to God. They were so stubborn. So God did what he said he was going to do. He said, i got to discipline you now. i got to discipline the southern kingdom as well. The Israelites are so stubborn and self-assured, though, that when he does discipline them, they're actually going to say, well, it was our false gods, our idols that we were worshiping that did this to us. It wasn't even God. They still don't get it. He sends them into exile in Babylon. They still don't realize that it's their real God that is doing this to them. They, they still think it's, it's their idols and their false gods. So, yeah, I read that and I just go, stubborn and dumb. And things haven't changed much. Now, to make sure that you don't feel indicted by this, I'll just talk about myself. I'm stubborn and dumb. Jackie, can you give me an amen? Amen, yeah, okay. I'm stubborn and dumb, but that's why I need Jesus. And that's why I'm so grateful for him. Because even in my stubbornness, in my foolishness, he still loves me. He still, he still comes for me. He's the hound of heaven, and I'm grateful for that. And I know that even in saying, I just know this, even in saying that, some of you are thinking right now, this makes you uncomfortable, and you're thinking, oh, oh poor Frank, he, he just has such low self-esteem. Uh, no, what I have is accurate self-assessment. You can ask Jackie, there's nothing wrong with my esteem. I, just trust me on that. I have an accurate self-assessment, and it's that accurate self-assessment that ultimately, eventually, when I was 27, God used that as a part of the way that the Holy Spirit revealed his truth to me. Understanding who I was, that I was stubborn and I was foolish, was, was part of what helped open up the Holy Spirit uh, for me and revealed the truth of him to me. I'm no different than the Israelites. I am stiff-necked. And speaking of stiff-necked, you know I love word pictures and rhetoric, so let's talk a little bit about verse 4, Okay? So verse 4, that first word, obstinate, in the Greek, literally it means rigorously stiff-necked. So what does it mean to be stiff-necked? Besides stubborn, it's, a, it's an indication of stubbornness, but literally it means that you are unable, you refuse to bow down to the proper authority. You're always standing like this. In fact, you're looking at God like this, almost like you're trying to look down on God. It's stubbornness. It's a refusal to acknowledge the proper authority. You will not bow down to the one true God. And then he says, you're, you have necks of iron sinew. Sinew is that which connects bone and muscle. And, 
and uh, allows us to animate and move our limbs. Could you imagine what that would be like to not be able to move around? Well, that's what he's saying about their necks. And so what that is a picture of is they have no ability to look around and see anything from any perspective but their own. It's a metaphor. He's saying you have one perspective, and that's your perception of reality, and you refuse to listen to any other perspective. Yours is right. That's it. It's done. You only can look this way. You can't see anything else. You won't let anything else in. You refuse wise counsel. You don't listen. You are often seeking or say that you're seeking, but you never hear anything. And then this one, your forehead is brass. That means that you have absolutely no ability to learn anything. You already know it all, so why listen to God? Your forehead is brass. God says something to you and ping, it just bounces. It's like spiritual Teflon. God is speaking to you and it just bounces off because you've already got everything figured out. And verses 6 and 7, which we'll read in a second, confirm this. They're unwilling to admit the truth that is all around them, even though it's obvious. So here's the challenge. God's people will come out of exile, but they will still need a heart change. The problem is not that God's people are living in Babylon. It's that Babylon is living in their hearts. That's the big problem. And so they're still going to need that change. So look at verses 6 through 8. You have heard, now see all of this, and you will not declare it. From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From, the, uh, from of old your ear has not been open, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. God here is talking about the devastating effects of sin, and how comprehensively sin has destroyed and corrupted so many things. It's, it's, it's not just our relationships, it's It's our minds, it's our hearts, it's our vertical relationships, our horizontal relationships, our inner relationships with ourselves, our relationship with the creation. Uh, Creation is corrupted by sin. Uh, Everything has been corrupted by sin. It's comprehensive. Sin not only causes us to do the wrong thing and to miss the mark, but it has also corrupted our minds so that we lack wisdom and understanding. And we have the tendency to accept what the world tells us without analyzing it and discerning it and bringing God into the picture. And sin has disordered our ability to grasp even the most basic truths about God enlightening us. And so God ends this little three-verse treaty with the truth about all of our nature. We were born into sin. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We were born into it. It's, it's our nature from the very beginning. And we weren't even really born into it. It was from conception. Look at verse 8. It says, from before birth, we are rebellious. And this is confirmed in other places in the scripture. So here's a little biblical theology lesson for you. You and I are not Rousseauian. In other words, we, we, we do not... Uh, we are not, our nature is not what Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the philosopher in the 18th century, would say of us. We are not born with a clean slate. We are born with a nature of sin. We are not born good, as Rousseau says. We are not good people, and then somehow the world corrupts us. We are born into it. We are born into this system of corruption from the very beginning. And I know that people will say, and I get it, that's not fair. I didn't even have a chance. I know it's not fair, but that's the way it is. And I would argue 
that this is the best explanation there is for the reason that the world is in the mess that it's in. If that weren't the explanation, we could actually fix it. How long have we been trying to fix this world? How long have we been trying to make it right? And most of our efforts are, are either just, uh, they just exhaust us and we never get anywhere, or they actually make things worse. That's because there is this corruption of sin. And the only thing that can fix that is the restoration that will come about when Christ comes again. That's why we look forward to his second coming. And then verses 9 through 11. For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So what this paragraph is doing is reminding God's people that God is a covenant God. He's not a transactional God. He's not a contractual God. He's a covenant God, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. You can count on his word. And what that means is that he'll keep his promises no matter what. That's his character, and his character won't change. But because of his people's rebellion and stubbornness, they had to be disciplined through this Babylonian exile. They had to be refined. That's the word that he's using here. And that Refining language, we can also find it. It's a bit obscure, but you can find it in the New Testament. Some of you have heard me uh, use these verses over and over because I think they're really important in the New Testament. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where James says, Consider it all joy, my beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds. When, not if, but when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because we live in this sin-filled, corrupted world. When you encounter trials of various kinds. Because, consider it joy, because the testing of your faith will produce something. And the Greek word is hupomene. It'll produce perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, even patience. It'll produce something good. But the key there. That, that imagery of refining is the testing of your faith. That, that ancient Greek language is actually referencing what a goldsmith does with raw ore in a crucible and, hurt, and, and heats it up. Okay? How many of you live in this world and feel at times the heat of this world stirring you up, heating you up? Okay, the, the, the whole point of that is that when we face trials and suffering and challenges and tribulation, it heats us up. And the idea is just like uh, the heating up of gold in a crucible so that the goldsmith can, can push away the dross and the impurities when we get heated up too, it exposes our dross, it exposes our impurities. And when that happens, we can, we can push it away. We have God with us. It says the testing of your faith. That means God's with you in this, with me in this. We can observe the, the dross and the impurities and we can push them away. And then the next time things heat us up, because we're going to get heated up again, we're living in this crucible, the next time we get heated up, maybe we'll do a little better. Maybe we'll have a little bit more stamina. Maybe we'll have a little bit more wisdom. That is the idea of refining and they needed some refining, and that's why they went into uh, exile. So these 11 verses, God is compassionate, and he's filled with grace. He's going to redeem and restore his people. But he's also, he also knows that they need to go some, through some refining and discipline. And then the rest of this chapter, 48, God calls his people to be ready, to be ready for their redemption and their restoration. In verses 12 and si through 16, he reminds his people once again that he is creator, thus assuring them and us of his power and sovereignty. 
He can and will save us. God will redeem and restore his people from the Babylonians. And he's going to redeem and restore us from our exiles, from our wildernesses. And God has clearly and publicly said this. He's not hiding it. He says, this is going to happen out in the open because it'll, it'll bring me glory when I save my people. It brings God glory that Jesus went to the cross to save us. These are things that bring God glory. So God is able to restore you and me from our exile, from our wildernesses, whatever they, they might be, whether they're relationship wilderness and exiles or financial wilderness and exiles, uh, cultural or career wilderness and exiles, addiction wilderness and exiles. He can redeem and restore us, but we need to follow him. We need to trust him. We need Jesus. And then verses 17 through 19 in chapter 48 is a key, a key paragraph. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like waves, the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your uh, descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. In the Mosaic Law, in the book of Deuteronomy, six times God says to his people, six times he says, if you follow this law that I'm giving you, my commandments, it will go well with you. It will go well with you if you follow me. It will go well with you if you take my commandments seriously and follow them. Six times he said that to them, and they still wouldn't do it. He says here, oh, if only you had paid attention to me. If only you had followed my commandments. If only we would embrace the discipline of following God. I know discipline is no fun. Hebrews 12.11, the author says it this way. In the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I've run a number of marathons, and two of them were extraordinarily painful experiences for me. And the reason they were painful was because I did not properly embrace the discipline of training correctly for them. And the reason I didn't properly embrace the discipline of training correctly for these marathons was because I don't like discipline, because in the moment it's painful and it's awful. But you do it because you know that there's going to be this fruit of righteousness that you're going to harvest from it later on. That's, that's what discipline is like. And, and so then God says it here. He says, if you had embraced this, if you had followed me and paid attention to me, then your peace would be like a river. Some of you remember that song, and we actually sang a version of it this morning. Here it is. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Some of you are so glad I didn't sing that right there. I would have if you had joined in, but I didn't, I noticed. Anyway, have you ever thought, how is peace like a river? Why that simile? Why that rhetorical device? What's going Peace like a river? Okay, here's why. A river is able to transcend all of its obstacles. A river goes about its business and is not detained by complications or difficulties. Even if something is put in front of the river, the river just goes, I'll go around. The river figures it out. The river always seeps. The river always gets to its destination. In the same way, we have peace from God. 
when we seek to know him despite our sometimes miserable circumstances, his peace transcends all of those circumstances. That's why we can have miserable circumstances and still have God's peace. And we're not happy with our circumstances, I recognize that. But God is with us. And so his peace and joy enable us to persevere in the face of life's difficulties. That's also James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. But we need to remember that his presence and guidance are impossible to rely on when we don't bother to follow him and engage him ourselves. And then it says, righteousness is like the waves of the sea. So it's the same thing. You can't stop God's righteousness. Have you ever tried to stop a wave? Anybody ever go to the beach, tried to stop a wave? You, know, you point a finger at it, and then you go stand there. Okay? You're just not going to stop it. All right? that, how, any, here you go. I want to see your hands high. Who has been to Galveston, Texas? Anybody? Oh, it's where you're born. Okay. Cool. All right. So there's a few more than in the 730 service. Okay. So, you know, Galveston has a seawall. How did that do in the, in, the, uh, in the hurricane in 1900 for Galveston? Galveston was completely submerged. They had the seawall. Everything's going to be fine. Completely submerged. By the way, Eric Larson wrote a book called Isaac's Storm. It's a fantastic um, narrative of Isaac's Storm, that, that 1900 hurricane in Galveston. But didn't stop, didn't stop the wave. Here you go. I bet more people will raise their hand here. How many of you have been to the cove, the cove in La Jolla? Okay, more hands there. Okay, so... My grandfather lived for twenty last 20 years of his life in the assisted living complex that overlooked that cove. So the cove is this special little area where the Pacific Ocean comes in, and they built a seawall out and created this cove. When I was a kid, I used to go over there and swim in that cove. If you've been there lately, you know the cove has been taken over by seals, and no one's allowed to go down there now. And nobody would want to either. I wouldn't want to swim in that water now. Okay, but it's been taken over. Now it's called Seal Beach. But there's that... There's that big wall there. Do you know how many people will go out on that wall during high waves thinking, we got a wall, I'm going to be safe, and then they get swept off by the wave, and they never are heard from again. It happens all the time. And by the way, people still go out there. Won't happen to me. See, that's, God's righteousness is that powerful. It can overcome anything. No matter what it is. That's why we see this vivid imagery here. Righteousness is costly. It costs Jesus his life on the cross, but it's powerful. It's like an ocean wave. God wraps chapter 48 in verses 20 and 21. He says, listen, when my people were in the wilderness after the exodus and they were in dire need of water, I caused a rock to bleed water. I can do that. I can save you from Babylon if I can do that. That's what he says. And then in 49, we're going to hit a few verses and then summarize, but there's some good stuff in here too. Look at 49, 1 and 2. Listen to me, O coastlands. That's another way of saying all people. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Now, what do you think that is describing? Well, it's the gospel story of Mary, Elizabeth, and Zechariah and the forenaming of Jesus. And it's also looking ahead to the gospel story of Jesus' ministry of his word and his astute teaching. 
Those two verses look forward to all of that. It's prophetic in that way. And we should see now that God is beginning to build to that climax that we'll find in chapters 52 and 53 where he says, this is going to be my Messiah. This is why we can also say with confidence that while God's purpose in Isaiah 40 through 55 is to assure the Israelites that he will rescue them from Babylon, this rescue is actually a picture of the ultimate rescue that his suffering servant Jesus will provide for all of us. In verses 6 and 7, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So again, this is Jesus, notice, is a light to the nations. Ironically, this was supposed to be Israel. God chose his nation, his people to do that, but they blew it. So Jesus, the servant, the Messiah, he's going to come, but he doesn't blow it. Okay, And then verse 7 further foreshadows Isaiah 52 and 53. And it foreshadows Jesus' public ministry in the New Testament Gospels. It it, it talks about how most people are going to look at Jesus and despise him. They're going to to see nothing redeeming in him. They're only going to see weakness and feebleness. That's what they're going to see in Jesus. And yet he comes in humble power. And that humble power is beautifully displayed. His humility is the cross. His power is the resurrection. Humble power. And then just look at verses 14 through 16. Those verses remind us that when we feel as though the Lord has forgotten us, we should remember what our founding pastor Tom used to say all the time. What we know trumps what we feel. What we know trumps what we feel. And what we know is that God will never leave us or forsake us. In verse 16, look at that. It says that God engraved his people on his hand. It's like a tattoo, and there's no cosmic laser that is able to remove this tattoo of his people on his hands. It was an ancient custom uh, for people to, some people, not everybody, but they would puncture or they would, they would carve out places on their hands in order to demonstrate devotion to a god or to a person or to something. This was a common custom that many people would do. They would do that on their hands. God is saying, listen, I've done that for you. I'm devoted to you. So much so that you are graven on my hands. So I want you to consider Jesus engraved your name on his heart when he went to the cross. I mean, just imagine that. When he went to the cross, your name was engraved on his heart. He suffered the pain and the shame of the cross just so that your name could be hidden in his salvation for you. On his heart. That's an amazing thing. And then verses 22 and 23, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and I will raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers with their faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me will not be put to shame. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. 
God knows how hard it is to wait. The Israelites had to wait 70 years in exile. That's two generations of people. And, and, and sometimes, you know, when we're waiting on God, it even sometimes feels shameful and we're embarrassed by it. We're clinging to God even though everything around us is falling apart and people are pointing at us going, you really believe that God can fix this? Where is your God now? How many of you heard, where is your God now? Well, he's there. It's just that it's going to be his timing. And when he decides to move, we wish we could control his timing and how he moves. But in the end, he, he will deliver, he does deliver, and we will not be ashamed. I'm very sorry, apologize up front to some of you. I have two sports illustrations for this. All right, I know we're in church, and I know we're in Arcadia, which is like, better, one better be soccer. It's not. We're going to talk about other sports. But two sports illustrations here for you. Uh, how many of you remember the Super Bowl? I mean the Super Bowl. Not the Super Bowl, which is what it usually is. Anyway, the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 51, what was that, seven or eight years ago? The New England Patriots and the Atlanta Falcons. Anybody remember that game? Yeah, okay, I had a Boston fan in here earlier, and, and he was going crazy, okay. In the middle of the third quarter, the New England Patriots were behind by 25 points. That's four possessions, okay? What they said is that lead is insurmountable. No team can overcome that. They're done. It's over. They were already partying in the streets of Atlanta. And the Patriots were embarrassed and they were shamed. Who won the game? Patriots came back and won it in overtime. Now who's embarrassed? Now who's embarrassed? Okay, here's another one. This one's really close to my heart in a kind of a bad way. So how many of you have ever heard of a team called the St. Louis Blues Anybody? They're a hockey team, okay? In 2019, on January 2nd, halfway through the regular season, the St. Louis Blues were in dead last place in the National Hockey League. 32 teams in the league, they were 32nd. They were the worst team. They were embarrassed. It was shameful. The city of St. Louis wouldn't even claim them. Some people were wearing bags over their heads at the game. But then they started to win a little bit. And then they win a little bit more. They start climbing up the standings. This is amazing. No team has ever done this. In the history of the NHL, no team has ever done this. They slid into the playoffs. They got into the top 16 teams. And then they went through four playoff rounds, seven-game series, and got all the way to the finals, played the heavily favored Boston Bruins in the finals, and won game seven. They won the Stanley Cup. It's the most amazing comeback victory season in the history of professional sports. They were embarrassed just five months early. They were shameful five months early. And then they got to lift up the Stanley Cup for the first time in their franchise history. And I'll just remind some of you, it was against the Boston Bruins. Perry. <laughs> I know, Boston's really good this year. They'll probably win it this year. Well, we'll see. Here, here's the point. I don't think God really cares about the, the New England... I know God doesn't care about the New England Patriots or the St. Louis Blues. <laughs> he doesn't care about... He cares way more for you and me than he does for trophies or, or championships. Understand that? Way more for us. The reason I bring that up is because this is God. He's saying, I'm never out of the game. You never have to think that it's insurmountable. I am coming back no matter what you think. I'm there. I've always been there. 
I'm waiting for my timing because my timing is going to be the type of timing where everybody looks and says, that's God. And it will be a tribute to his glory. Jesus came at just the right time. He was crucified at just the right time. He was raised at just the right time. He ascended at just the right time. And he is going to come again and make things right at just the right time. That's what we can count on. It, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite bumper stickers that I've ever said, seen. Years ago in the parking lot at Grand Canyon University, this bumper sticker, I saw it. It's the only one I've ever seen. I looked at it and just, I stood there and laughed. It said, I can predict the future, colon, God wins. That's it. It's true. It's true. Finally, that last verse, verse 26. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The most difficult thing to wait on God for is justice. That's the most difficult thing that we wait on God for is His justice. And believe me, we need His justice. So many places where we need His justice. And yet God is saying, don't worry, I've got this. I am going to come, and the people who are the oppressors, those who are creating all these injustices, they're going to recognize that that was a mistake. God reminds his people that there will be consequences for those who perpetrate evil, for those who oppress. This is, um, this always makes, reminds me of what Miroslav, a, a theologian, wrote about this. He wrote this. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially those in the West. So he's talking about us. We are inclined to dismiss it, this idea of nonviolence because of God's ultimate divine eternal justice. We are inclined to dismiss it because we're sure that we know better and we should execute our own justice. But God is holy. It is a question of faith that we, that we trust him for the proper justice at the proper time, even in the face of ravaging violence and oppression. But when God does decide to act, what God is also saying here is that it will be so stunning and amazing that the world will not be able to help but know that it's God the Lord and that he is sovereign. Further, the Lord is going to look at that and they're also going to know that Jesus and the cross and the resurrection are real and they are effective. I'll remind you again, God is playing the long game and that is good news for those of us who patiently wait for him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that we can see through history, your history, that people have been through so many things that we feel like we are going through as well. Refining, discipline, injustice, and that there's a purpose in all of these things. That purpose is for our good, and for your glory. And so we pray that we would see that and we would claim that and that we would keep our hope in you, the one who has made a covenant with us through your son. We praise you for that. We praise, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing a couple more songs. We come to our time of reflection and response. Um, we're going to have people standing in the wings uh, ready to pray with you if you need prayer or answer any questions if you have any questions. We're also going to take communion during this time of reflection and response during the first song. Um, again, on that night that Jesus was betrayed, 
he's with his disciples. They're having the Passover meal, and he picks up the bread at one point. He breaks, breaks Passover protocol, but he gives thanks, and then he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body, and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's, he's foreshadowing what's going to happen to him on the cross. And then after they had supped, he picked up the, the cup that's filled with wine, the Thanksgiving cup, and he says, this is, the cup of the new bl- uh, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this is also going to happen on the cross. My blood will be shed so that you can be forgiven of your sins. Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's what we do now. And so when you step out into that aisle and come forward to our communion servers, our communion servers can come forward. When you step out of the aisle and you come forward, it's a confession that you need Jesus, but it's also a celebration that you have him and that he has done this for you and that we are redeemed and restored to the Father. So let's do that now. your heart but more than offerings Lord you see the depths of me when you see me you see my heart through the eyes of your mercy in the light of your son you love me with open arms in the pride Once a prodigal Burdened by my shame Till you came running 
to remind me your love is unconditional in your eyes I'm worthy of forgiveness what was lost is now reading when you see me you see my heart through the eyes of
Well, amen. Church, what an honor and a privilege it is to worship with you this morning. As we go into this week, I first want to welcome anybody who is new. Welcome to Redemption Church, the Arcadia flavor, mint chocolate chip, my favorite. If you're new here, I would love to meet you. Uh, It is the first Sunday of the month, which means it's intro Sunday. If you have questions about what what God is doing here at this church, if you're interested in learning more, I would love to meet you in the back at the Connect Desk, take you on a little tour of the campus, and just get to know you. But for the rest of us, as we go into this week, I want to read this encouragement, this benediction out of the book, book of Isaiah to be our encouragement. It says, thus says the Lord, this is the Lord speaking to his people, to us. He says, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. This is God speaking to us. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. And then knowing and being confident in Christ, we can be encouraged by this. Saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness appear. Praise God, we're not in darkness anymore. Redemption Church, go live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.